Disruptive Storytelling with Military Changemakers is a bi-weekly podcast presented by Partners in Promise. Partners in Promise is a nonprofit dedicated to protecting the rights of military children in special education. Large organizations like the military have learned to love the status quo. But at Partners in Promise, we believe in being disruptive as we have learned that having easy conversations rarely leads to real change in special education or in the military. We are storytellers who aren't afraid to get a little disruptive. Disruptive Storytelling is sponsored by the Modern Military Association of America. Founded in 1993, MMAA is the nation's largest nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing fairness and equality for the LGBTQ military and veteran community. Learn more about what the changemakers at MMAA are up to at modernmilitary.org. Welcome back to Disruptive Storytelling with Military Changemakers. I'm your host, Jennifer Barnhill, the Chief Operating Officer for Partners in Promise. Today's topic covers the sexual assault of a minor and the stigma faced by her mother and family as a result of this experience. This story is upsetting on many levels. And as an organization dedicated to protecting the rights of military children, our hearts break for this family. If you need to stop this podcast right now, please do and just tune in to another episode. Like our guest today, we are not here to sensationalize this topic, but rather to talk about it in the hopes that somehow we can normalize the conversation of asking for help when needed. Our guest today is Jessica Martinez, the spouse of an active duty service member currently stationed on the West Coast. She is a mother of three young daughters and is a working professional in the nonprofit military sector. Jessica is also an Air Force Master Resilience Trainer. As a military spouse, she can be found advocating for military spouses like her, airmen and their families, and for the safety of military children. Jessica founded Operation Addy as a result of the experiences that her family faced. These advocacy efforts are driven from her personal experiences as a military spouse of 16 years and her personal mission of striving for continuous improvement and growth wherever she finds herself. We're thrilled that she has taken the time to talk with us today to discuss this difficult topic. Let's hear her story. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our podcast today, Military Stigma, Tough Conversations Worth Having. Today, I am joined by Jessica Martinez, and she is going to talk with us today about, you know, a a subject that is a little bit heavy um, and real and raw, and we're really excited to have you here today with us, Jessica. Can you just start off by just introducing yourself a little bit and your connection to the military? Yeah, so I am Jessica Martinez, and I currently am a military spouse, Air Force spouse. I will rep that all day long. Super proud of our branch. I also work in the military space. I used to work for Blue Star Families, and now I'm over at Hiring Our Heroes, just really making everyday changes for military families, whether that be through transition or the fun, great things that happen in the military community. I'm all for it. Well, thank you for coming. And I, you know, as someone who also works in this space. It's a, it's a thrill to talk to you. I'm really excited to, to talk with you. But again, like I said, we're not here for necessarily a uplifting conversation. We have some hard stuff to talk about today. And, you know, just as far as this topic for our podcast, we're talking about stigma and the areas of stigma that our military families encounter a lot. And just to start off, we, we have some areas that it's unclear, you know, what is stigma? What's the difference between stigma and maybe shame or guilt? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different things. So when we're talking about stigma, we're talking about a couple different things. There's stigma that someone feels inside, and then there's stigma that other people inflict upon them through how they're treated after something event happens. And so the reason you're here today is because of something that happened to you and your family 
and I'll just, you know, kind of kick it off to you to, to kind of give us a little bit of a background of that story. Yeah, so uh, we have been a military family for, I've been married almost 16 years now, and we have three wonderful daughters, but, you know, we were, that's uh, a great way to put this, because hard topics are never easy to just come out and talk about, right? Our daughter was sexually assaulted at a FCC home, which was a very pivotal moment in our lives because it's, from what I've realized is that when you're dealing with a child that's inaudible, there's a level of complexity and there's a level of like gray area. Our child was not audible at that point in time. She was on the cusp of two to three and she really, she really just stopped talking. And that really wasn't what kicked everything off for us. What kicked everything off of like something might not be right was that we received photographs on my Facebook messenger, which we all get photographs through Facebook and Facebook messenger. But you know, these photographs, my child was redressed in clothing that I had never seen. Her hair was redone and she was, uh, photographs were being taken of her and the provider together. And it like, I, I didn't know what it meant at the time. I had no idea like what was actually going down. All I knew was that something didn't feel right. And I always, when I have these moments, I always run them by my husband because he's like the polar opposite of me is like, Hey, yeah, that's a green light. That's, that's no, you're like, this is just one of your monthly moods or something, you know, you know how parent, like how husbands kind of like, yeah, no, no, it's okay. It's all good. And that's because we come from different experiences in life. And, and that's one of the great things that I value in my husband, but I sent it to him and he was, he was just like, no, something's off about this. I can't tell you what, but it's off. And I was like, okay, not just me. So my husband then went and got our daughter from this provider. And this provider had become kind of, it's called entangled where the lines of boundaries have been crossed. And our daughter really didn't seem like she was our daughter. She was now like their daughter. And it was really just an awkward situation. So as a parent, we decided we're not going to enroll her anywhere else, which then creates a problem of like, my spouse has to go to work because he's active duty, right? And I have to go to work. So we got to figure that out. So my husband took some leave and we just watched our daughter because our gut was telling us like something's not right. And we have all of these like outside things that she's doing that that doesn't make sense. So at that point, like in a two week time frame, we were just having um, what is called what we've learned that's called inappropriate age self exploration. Like it's not appropriate for the current age that she's at. We just were just like, okay, you know, what do we, what do we do? Right. Because unlike the, when it's an active duty member, there is the unrestricted and restricted reporting for children, there is not that. Um, so at, at that point in time, I called my pediatrician and my pediatrician was like, you know, she said it in such a kind way, but she was like, we don't do these type of exams here. And I was like, well, I just need to know if like, she's okay, because she's screaming all the time. She can't regulate. She's throwing herself on the floor anytime that we go to the commissary. And this is, this was a place that we had ran into these people before. So like the places that she knew that she could potentially run into these folks, she could no longer regulate herself. And then like just the kicking, the screaming, the biting, um, I got slapped a couple of times and my two-year-old was not, not like that at the time. Like we all hear terrible twos, but she was a full like bundle of joy. Like she was our third child and, you know, the baby of the family and we never had these issues. So it was a complete attitude and mood change that we noticed. And I had taken her, my husband and I had taken her right before uh, her birthday to a play like a, what do you call those? Like an outdoor strip mall where you kind of go shopping. And there was a local toy store that we really enjoyed. And we took her in there and she was just, she lost it. Complete meltdown, hiding underneath fixtures. She couldn't survey the room quick enough. And I really was just like, okay, one, I'm exhausted because she no longer can sleep by herself. So she's in our bedroom all the time having to physically touch one of us. So if it wasn't myself that she was like literally right next to, it was my spouse or it was my other two children. Like she could not function alone anymore. 
And this was completely, again, polar opposite. So at that point, when I called my pediatrician, I was like, we have all these external things. We don't know kind of what's going on. What do we do? And I was like, can you just check her? And she was like, honey, you gotta, you gotta go to the the ER. And at that point I was just kind of like, Oh, I don't, (laughs) I don't want to do that. You know, because, you know, one it's, it's also coming out of denial, right? You're coming out of denial that something could have potentially happened to your child and you had no control over it. And I think for my husband and myself, like that was a really big step just to take her to the ER. And, you know, eventually the police showed up because they don't, they don't tell you this. You kind of see it probably on like special victims, law and order situations, but you think it's just the TV, right? Like it's just the way the TV does it. But no, eventually, you know, a sexual assault victims advocate came and then the police came and they, they took the report and we really just, just soaked it in because we, we didn't know right? Like we didn't know our, our daughter was no longer talking. So we couldn't like ask her. And and at that age, it's not like you can just be like, Hey, X, Y, and Z, like what's going on? Like they can't, they don't have the emotion, emotional intelligence. They don't have the emotional capacity to kind of communicate what's, what's gone on. So at that point, the police came and, and, you know, you just kind of take it in because it's, it's a lot. And then the police opted not to forensically examine her because it had been two weeks. And I was okay with that because I'm not about inflicting more trauma on top of trauma because I felt like that would be more traumatic for her not understanding what had happened. But eventually the pediatrician that was attending had to do an examination. And when that examination happened, it was, it was one of the most confirming things that I've had in this situation where, you know, our daughter's actions, she had been playing with the doctor all all night long. Let me check your ears. Let me do this. It was super cute. You know, she was able to make a connection with him, but once she got to the pelvic region, she could no longer allow anybody down. And at that point in time, as a mom, your, your heart kind of sinks because you don't know exactly what happened but you know that something's not right. And I, and I keep telling myself like something wasn't right. I just didn't know what it was. Um, and so like they hand you the paperwork on your way out. And at this point it was like midnight and they, uh, they hand us this paperwork and, and I just leave. I just collect my child that I had birthed at that same hospital and walked right out into our car. And I was already upset because I didn't know what was going on, but two, like you involve the police and then you involve like a special assault or what is she called? She's a sexual assault victims advocate that kind of gives you this like vanilla envelope. And I have the vanilla envelope. It it is so odd. Like that is what I stored the first hundred sheets of paper that I got in our, in our case. At that point in time, we didn't know what to do. Like, I just wanted the mental health help for my child. I wanted to be able to, as a parent, help my child so that she could feel safe going to the commissary so that she could feel safe sleeping alone so that she could feel safe. If anybody that she didn't know approached her because she used to be like a very happy child that was friendly to everybody. And after that, it was just kind of like polar opposite. So we get this paperwork and I start looking at it and and the paperwork, like the doctor doesn't forewarn you on this. He just kind of handed us the paperwork and we were just like, Oh, Okay, thanks. Discharge paperwork. We're reading the discharge paperwork, and um, you know the doctor put sexual assault by bodily force. And at that point in time, like I called the detective, and I was like, "Uh, did you guys know this? Because I didn't know this. So like, if if I don't know it, like, did you know it?" And they're like, "You know, no, we didn't know it." And so you know that kicked off a lot of of the investigative side, which in the city that we were in, unless it's a violent crime, the local police department isn't really handling it, right? If it's a military problem, they kick it over to the investigative agency. At that point in time, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really worried about the investigative side of it. I just wanted our daughter back, back to normal. Man, it's been a journey, but we're getting there. I can tell you that now, but uh, the investigative side didn't go as I thought that it would. 
when I think of people that are there to, to help fight crime, I think of people that are just there to help, right? What ended up happening is that, and I didn't find this out until probably a few months ago, is that a lot of the case notes they took were very watered down of our daughter. So instead of saying she was doing X, Y, and Z, which was not appropriate age, age appropriate, they just put, you know, the kid was touching herself. Like that was it. You know, they really like made it very watered down and bland. And, and when you're reading that from a parent's perspective, you're like, what in the world? Like, why was it not documented correctly? Like the local police department had, you know, documented it correctly. Why isn't it happening within our system? So you know, I, I found that out, but at the, at the time as I navigated that, I didn't know that piece of information. So I just knew that like something didn't seem right. Everybody seemed to know about our information, about our daughter and what had happened to her, the specific components within the family support squadron that for support squadron that are supposed to help you knew they weren't supposed to know. And I was, I didn't really know. And so at that point in time, I, I just really retreated, but I remember I lost my job like three weeks later, right? In the midst of everything else going on, like I lost my job because they didn't have FMLA. And when you work for a small company and you don't have FMLA, you can't really do much with an employee that has a life situation going on. You can't use leave that they don't really have because they haven't been there that long. So I lost my job and I posted about it on LinkedIn and I posted about it on privately on my Facebook to specific people. and couple weeks later, I I got a call from that local leadership and they're like, it's unsubstantiated. You need to take that down. And I, I said, no, ma'am, like I'm, I'm not taking that down because one, my daughter is doing, and I just like emptied the whole like Rolodex on her, like doing X, Y, and Z and this and that and the other. And, and she was like, I'll call you back. And then I had never heard from her again. And so at that point in time, I was just like, okay, I'm not worried about this. I'm more worried about the mental health help of my daughter. And we weren't getting any like services on base. Nobody was really helping us. You know, we were more of just a complaint that was unsubstantiated. Eventually we found an advocacy clinic that helped us begin to unravel all of this because At that point in time, like it had been a few months before we got into therapy with our daughter because we had to find a therapist. So that's, that's another thing that I found on this journey is that there's not a lot of therapists that deal with that age of children that deal with sexual trauma. So that was one of the biggest roadblocks that I had. So we finally, you know, we had this, this wonderful therapist that was, it wasn't through TRICARE. It was literally, it was through the state. And if it wasn't for the state victims grant, we wouldn't have gotten any services. We would have just been like, here you go, you know, kind of figure it out yourself. And I am a big believer. If you have tools, you can like, like if you have the appropriate tools, you could likely help. But I had, I did not have the appropriate tools. I, even as a mom, an experienced mom, I didn't have the tools. And so at that point, you know, we, we really just every week every week we showed up and every week she would come over to our house as well and work with us to try and get our daughter like back to normal. And it, it didn't, it didn't really make a break in the situation. It just helped us learn how to, to operate with a child that was dysregulated, that could not, you know, emotionally talk about anything who could not use her words anymore. So that was the biggest thing. It was no longer mom. Can I have some milk? It was just pointing. I need this or I need that. Or we did at one point try and enroll her in another care facility off the base that dealt with, you know, children that were licensed by the state. And we would have days where, and this is the hardest part, is that she would just sit in her soiled diaper because she didn't want anybody to touch her. So having to work through that as a mother and knowing that your daughter is, is struggling like that, like, something had to give. And, and I, I obviously couldn't ask that of my spouse. My spouse is in the military. He, you know, went to work every day after that and just kind of survived. And then that's kind of what life was like for a little while. And eventually we had another life situation where my father-in-law died and we had the opportunity to go home. It was so eye-opening. 
it was so eye-opening and in our daughter, because you think about this, like you're in a different facility, you're in a different area, you're in a different state and you're able to, to see your child, like go play with her sisters and like no longer be afraid to move or be afraid to be away from you for, for five seconds. And at that point in time, like we knew we need, we needed to get out of that local area. And because my husband was an instructor at the time, we were locked in. <laughs> we were committed to that assignment. And uh, we eventually were assigned a special victims council, which if you don't know about a special victims council, we'll talk about that in a little bit about the different resources that are out there. We were assigned a special victims council that they kind of helped us, you know, navigate talking to the base, but also finding the services for our daughter, advocating to a certain extent for our daughter, like just being the voice of her when we couldn't be because, you know, coming forward with your daughter who has been through something like this, like you're worried about your daughter and you don't really have the energy to advocate and, and be the voice of her. And, and it's not like I can request a meeting with, you know, a group commander and say like, Hey, this isn't going down. Right. You know, I don't have the appropriate words. So they really tried to help and navigate that system. We eventually were we requested a humanitarian and that was the only way that we knew that we could get out of this assignment. And it, and it wasn't just that assignment. It was for the safety of our daughter because we had seen the difference within her. We submitted it and we faced a struggle with it because one, we had to tell why we needed this humanitarian. We had to tell like the medical piece of it as well, because she was now enrolled in the EFMP program for needing counseling services. And so when we did this humanitarian, the humanitarian went up to the appropriate channels and then it was switched to what is called an EFMP reassignment, where your your information is sent out to five different bases and somebody kind of, you know, pipes up and says, we got the services, we can help. So this happened this new base was across the United States from where we were at. And we were, we were excited. We were like, oh, yes, we get to start over. We're going to have ther- a therapist that's TRICARE funded and not state funded. We're, we're going to have all of these things and we're going to be able to get to heal. Like that was the biggest excitement when we got these orders. And when we got there, well, before we started getting there, we were being proactive parents. And we started calling everywhere like, hey, like, do you do this? Do you do that? Like, do you see children for this under this age? And we had gone through a list about 100 at that point in time, 100 folks in that local area and in that, you know, metropolitan area. And we couldn't find anybody. And we finally started saying like, hey, like, we can't find anything. Like, do you guys have anything? And I remember calling that base and them saying like, hey, we can't help you. And I was like, okay. Okay. So I hung up the phone and I was like, okay, maybe they know something when we get there, like they're going to know. Right. And when we got there, we, we went through the EFMPM and we said the same thing. Hey, we're not finding the services. Like, can you help us? And for a while it was, it was this, like, here's the card to this person in town. It's one of only two people that see children in this town and good luck. So we tried him out and I, the first guy was really good. He then handed us off over to a female because obviously with our daughter being a female, he felt that connect that sort of connection would be better. And she also supposedly dealt with children. Come to find out after the second appointment, there were things that weren't like, that weren't lining up with what our previous therapist had said. And I was like, hmm, like, I know that we had a state funded grant and that like they weren't getting paid, but I don't think it's this far off the marker. Like she wanted her to go through another examination. She wanted her to basically dig up all of this old stuff that we had already passed through. And I finally was like, okay, this doesn't sound right. So I decided to do some research on her because as a parent, like that's something I want to know more about this, this therapist. This therapist was actually slated to deal with sexual offenders, not children that are victims. So that was a very eye-opening experience because at that point we didn't know like what type of therapist, like what's the title, right? 
are they trauma informed? Are they, are they, you know, registered play therapists? Are they both like, are they, you know, are they just trauma? Like, how does this work? So we started doing some research. We also spoke to our previous therapist and she was like, okay, to help them narrow it down, it would need to be a registered play therapist who is trauma informed. And I was like, okay, that helps that like, that helps me narrow it down on psychology today. That helps me narrow it down for TRICARE, the military, the EFMPM, like sounded great. We went five months without services because we could not find a therapist. And that was very difficult. I had just moved into a new promotion at my job and I was unable to find a qualified daycare provider for our child in our home because our child would never really go back to a daycare facility. That's just not where we were emotionally at at that point in time. And I literally uh, just remember there being days of like her just sitting at my feet while I took Zoom calls or her falling asleep at my feet because she just needed to know that I'm there. Even though she knew like she's playing off in the corner Like she knew that I was physically there. She still needed me to be physically touching her. And, you know, those five months were long and exhausting. And I remember I I scheduled an appointment, which I do not recommend this for other spouses, but I scheduled an appointment with the medical group commander. And because I had, I had really reached a point with the EFMPM where she would no longer speak to me. She would only speak to the active duty member. So on top of this, like already hard situation of like trauma and sexual assault of our daughter, we were just thrown into this situation of having to advocate for our child and her medical services. And because of how the last base had handled it, they really didn't believe us because it wasn't within, you know, the, the reporting system that it's supposed to be in for FAP, which is the family advocacy program. There was no case records of it. There there was nothing. So they really didn't believe us when we said like, hey, this is what's going down. And and at that point, like before I had made that appointment with the medical group commander, I told uh, our pediatrician like, hey, we need to like get help. This is exhausting. And she said to me, she's like, well, why don't we do a developmental pediatrician um, consultation to see maybe if this is a developmental issue? And I was just kind of like, you know, it put me in a weird situation because you don't want to tell them no, because then you're going to look like you're hiding something. But then you don't want to tell them yes, because you have this extensive folder of like all this stuff that she's been through and all this testing that she's already been through. So, you know, reluctantly, we took her down an hour and a half away and we got her reviewed and, you know, it came back. This is the effects of trauma. Like the the developmental pediatrician was like, this is what trauma does to a child when they cannot process it. And I was just like, okay, like validation right there. Thank you. You know, it was a Marine Corps doctor. I was super excited about that. Like it was an external validation that we had outside of our branch saying like, Hey, no, this is what happens when trauma kind of, kind of affects a child. There's so much here to like unpack as far as stigma is concerned. You have so many layers that you've encountered. If you had to point to kind of one feeling or one undercurrent to this experience, which I mean, does any of them impact you the most um, as far as that's concerned or your, your key takeaway in this way? My key takeaway was that the military didn't believe us. And that affects like everywhere we go, right? You know, eventually we were PCS to another base and they were just like, whoa, we didn't know, you know? And, and I feel like the reporting system for a child is not very well known. It's, it's not known amongst parents. It's not known amongst the people that actually operate the system. And that has impacted us so well. Like that takeaway of like them not validating our child's experience or validating the medical piece, you know, and instead of being asked what our daughter was doing, we were asked why we made the doctor check the box. And this was from the investigative agency. Why did I make the doctor check the box for this? 
I was taken aback because I work, I work in marketing. Like I don't work in the mental, like medical field. I know nothing about that. So to hear them like invalidate it and also just kind of brush it to the side is what really has impacted this whole journey. And I, and I think that that's my one takeaway is, is that that is one place that we need to get better at, even from the professional side, like the people that handle it, but also from another mom's perspective, right? I can tell you that I don't make friends easily now. I am very cautious because I have to share my story. And my story is so delicate that there are people that they don't handle it well. It's hard to sit with other people's sadness. Yeah. Or and, and let it be okay. Yeah. Or the length of time that it's taken. I, I don't have many friends from that period of time anymore, just because we've kind of transitioned so many times and they, a lot of people just don't know what all we've been through. And, and I was unpacking it for a friend that I had at that point in time. And, and she said, I didn't realize the impact that it would take that it like it, it had on your family. I had no idea that this would take this long. Um, and I, and I think that that's like another big takeaway is that the process of healing isn't 30, 60, 90. It were 24 months plus out of this. And I can tell you that like, there are still hard days. And I, I think that that's very hard for other parents and other moms to, to know that. And I, I've talked about this before. If you had talked to me two and a, you know, two and a half years ago, I wouldn't have thought twice that this would have happened. I was the bubble mom. I follow the rules. Like I do all of the things that you're supposed to. And I had this happen to me, you know, and and it's not to me, it's, it's to my daughter. And then through my daughter's experience, our family has also been traumatized because of how it's been handled. So it's, it's two layers. Like we had this really big impactful situation, life-changing. And then we had this other situation where we had to like fight and advocate and in days that felt like we were just surviving. And, and I think that that's, what's so difficult is that, you know, airmen go to work every single day and, you know, they do whatever they need to do, whether it's in finance, whether it's in, you know, maintenance, whether it's in mental health, they go to work. They put on this face and they, they say like, I'm good to go. I'm blued up. I love the air force. We're going to do whatever we need to do. But I know for my airman, when he comes through that wall, sometime, like comes through that, that door some days, he knows what he's facing when he comes home. It's not easy. And I, and I say this for every special needs parent, like we all face something when we come through that door at 5 PM or 4 30 or if it's 3 a.m. in the morning, like I can I can tell you that like there have been days that he's just like, this is a lot. And we just we hunker down and we we work together to get through it. And and chains of command don't matter. All of the other stuff that's outside of that door don't matter. And I think that that's one of the biggest takeaways I've I've had as well is like there are probably other families out there like this that just don't talk about it because of the shame. Yeah. And for, for those families, you know, I think that one of the reasons it's so, you said shameful, or you feel the stigma or you feel this pain, you're feeling it on multiple levels, you know, as Mm -hmm. a parent of a, a minor, a child who, as you mentioned, can't speak, you know, there is this feeling like, we're responsible in some way. And so I am not saying that I agree, you know, anything. So that could be anything like, does your child get in an accident? Did they fall Mm -hmm. down the stair because they were, or running down the street? Did they trip and fall and and you should have been holding their hands and that's your, in your mind as a parent, that's how you, how you see things. But I know we don't give ourselves the grace that we might give to another person. Well, first of all, how did you experience that? And then do you have any thoughts for maybe someone else who's living through something similar of how they can move forward? You know, that that's a great question. Like for myself, like giving myself grace is the hardest thing because I've, I'm a hard worker. 
I'm a high producer. Like I want to get after it. Right. I, I want to be an amazing wife and an amazing mother, an amazing employee. And I can tell you like for myself, I had to really narrow down what mattered and what mattered wasn't, you know, the title that I had at work or what I did in the community. What mattered was getting our child through this and my family through it. Right. Because it's, I have two other children that have been kind of tugged, you know, tugged along throughout this whole situation. And for myself, like, I really just had to narrow it down and say like, okay, just what, what are the things that matter and narrow them down so that when I have those hard moments and I can tell you that I have them, I feel like almost daily, but there are certain days where like there's triggers, right. That, that arise that I'm like, if it wasn't for my choice and putting her in that daycare, I wouldn't be here. And when those moments come, because, you know, we're not perfect. I can tell you that those moments do come. And when they do, I have to say not today, not, you know, and I use that statement like very lightly, but it's, it's like the statement of like, not today, Satan. Like, it's like literally not today. We're not going to do this to ourselves today. We're not going to berate ourselves for this. We're going to care for our tender heart that is having a hard time processing this because if I don't process it, I'm going to go out and make bad decisions, or I'm going to go out and inflict that pain on somebody else, or I'm going to not be able to make connection with other people. And for me, like that was the thing of, of the past. I thrived on connections and relationships and being part of the community that really, that really cared for it, that really put forth an effort for it. And I do that every day when I go to work now but I don't do it on a personal level. I narrow it down. I write myself and say, Hey, today was a hard day. Just, but you know what? Tomorrow's going to be a better day because one, we're going to wake up, but two, also we're going to start the day and remember that it's not our fault. And it's not our fault that people just think that it's an allegation or they think that it's just a piece of paper that has defined our lives, or it's just our daughter that just can't regulate. Like that's their problem. We know our truth. We stand in it and we work through it. And we remind ourselves of that. Like that's like our power pep talk. <laughs> and, and I have them like daily. Cause I'm like, Oh girl, this is a little bit, this is a little bit challenging, but it really makes a difference for me to like have those, like I have a notebook off to my side that you guys can't see, but it's just full of different reminders of how positive this experience has been. Because like I said, there comes, and we were just talking about this in therapy, like there's the belly of the whale, like where you're really in the deep and the thick of it. And then you're going to start to come out of it. And when you're in the belly and it's really hard to kind of deal with, with life and just articulating what's been going on, I write down the positives of it. I got an answer from X, Y, and Z. I figured this out. I did that. Or somebody, somebody a couple of weeks, weeks ago said to me, like, can you imagine the glass that you have broken within the bureaucracy of advocating, you know, by advocating, you have broken and shattered so many glass ceilings, you know, feel like that. It doesn't always feel that way. No, no. But I take, I take those comments and I write them down because if I don't, it's going to be easy, especially for me as a mom that has previously struggled with like postpartum and things like that. Like I have to make intentional reminders and for the people that like haven't come out publicly, I know why it's so dang hard it really is. There is so many, it's, it's a complex situation and it's a painful one. And it's, it's a level of like a real deep level of shame that you really messed up your child. And reality is you didn't do anything to your child. Just so the listeners can kind of, if they ever encounter a family, a friend who has been through something similar to what you've been through, what have been some of the ways that you felt supported in a positive way and, and not in, you know, those (laughs) well-intentioned comments that have ended up being more harmful than helpful. What are some ways that people can help correct the stigma by being a good supportive friend 
what, what does that look like in your experience? Um, honestly, it's, it's knowing what the other family is going through. And I can tell you that I didn't felt, feel seen or heard until there was this, the guy, remember when I made that appointment with the medical group commander, he also called our leadership, which is a great thing. Like that's, it involved our leadership, but our senior master sergeant, our superintendent was a prior victim's advocate. So he was able to know, like, I don't know exactly what you're going through, but I just know that it's hard and I'm here for you. So this is the thing, like, I always, if my friend likes paninis, I go and I research that, right? If my friend is going through postpartum depression, I go and research that and I send them the articles and things like that. Or I just read articles on how I can be there with them. So one of the articles that I did find like throughout this journey, and I I have it pulled up on my phone here, but it's from the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. And it talks about the effects of sexual abuse and sexual assault on children. Navigating that and just reading that and knowing what that parent is going through can have you approach it with a different set of eyes. So instead of saying like, hey, I need X, Y, and Z by this date, you're going to be like, hey, you know, have you had five minutes alone today? Can I sit in your house with you or sit in your house while you go upstairs? So that's the biggest thing. Um, we have a respite care provider and I love her to death. It took quite a bit of time for me to actually use this provider. But if you're provided this as well, like use it. I sit up in my office every single day and I just like, I am still able to have the continuity that my daughter is safe, but I'm also to have I'm also able to have that time where I can kind of decompress, right? So if it's somebody sitting with my kids on the couch while I go upstairs and I decompress, whatever it is I found out that day, because it's a constant, you know, flow of information, that's, that's what you do. You don't, you don't make them the topic of the conversation. You just know that they're going through some stuff and it's going to probably be different than what you're used to. And I can tell you our parenting style is beyond different than what I raised my other two with. Um, and it's, you know, giving choices that empower our child. Not a lot of parents do that. And when they see me do that, they like their eyeballs are like, what? Like, why would you give your child multiple choices and let her choose? Like, this is the answer. And I have to tell it, like, I've explained that, like, no, or I can tell you, we, we constantly now try and make commissary trips to make it easier for her. So like the people of the commissary, when they see me with my child who is dysregulated, which is her on the floor, usually spinning and it looks like a break dancer, but it's not fun for a parent. It's utterly embarrassing. If you see that, give the mom a moment, like just give the mom a moment. And, or like I've actually done, we have a, a resource now that it's like, um, Potman where you do, I can be calm. And I sit there for five minutes with my child in the commissary on an aisle saying I can be calm and just trying to regulate them. And, and when you see that, just know that that mama, she's, she's working through some stuff as a parent and as a, you know, with the child. And that you never know what the circumstance is. You know, there are families who have autistic children and are going through trauma. And, and so there's never a time when the side eye is appreciated in those moments. It's, it's not, right. I'm not trying to make it, I'm not trying to make it light, lighter, but in reality, we've all been there where we've been yeah. as the parent being like almost shamed for having a child behave like a child or having an attack or having a, an incident in public. And that is, we have to Ooh, just yes. normalize the fact that children are children and then there's mm-hmm. layers of complication on top of that. And why are we shaming a parent for, for the behavior of their child that they're, they're doing their very best often yeah. through very hard circumstances. Well, Jessica, I, I know that we're, we've talked about so many different areas of shame and, and stigma with you. I know that you're also working towards advocating so that this doesn't have to happen to other families. And part of combating stigma and shame is just talking about it and getting it out there. And so thank you for sharing your story, but also thank you for helping it make, make it easier for other people to come forward. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're, you're doing at Operation? Yeah. 
And, and that's one of the things that I've set up is, is the Operation Addy. And I, I know that it has like what we've been through, but, and, and this is, I work in marketing. It doesn't have a great social media presence because it's the quiet work that's pushing you through the big changes. And so through that, I have been able to take our case and use it as an example of where there were gaps, where there were failures, where there could be additional education on how to handle this. So one of the things that I have been working with our point of contacts is to actually have a certification or continuing education of trauma on children and the effects of trauma, especially in regards to sexual assaults, because that was an area that I feel really wasn't understood thoroughly. And, and I mentioned before, like we didn't have family advocacy there helping us. They said, you know, we were standing down, we're not helping. So really having one of the things is like having that education, but also them knowing the process that they're supposed to go through. And I can tell you that there are days that I, I sit back and I think to myself, like, I still don't think they know the process that this is supposed to go through. And I think that that's where my continued advocacy goes to, because it's one thing for my family to go through this, but I don't want another family to go through we've had the military experience. If this happened to an A1C who has only been in two years, whose spouse is brand new to the military, I can tell you if I was that woman, I would have given up because, you know, my spouse has been in closer to, I think, 18, 19 years now. And I can tell you that there have been moments where I have said, this is, this isn't worth it, you know? And that's why, you know, I created Operation Adia so that one, we can work through the policy and the regulations that are currently there to make the changes. So that is one of the things. One of the things is also expedited transfers. So expedited transfers in the Air Force at that point in time were not offered to dependents of military members. So that that is what ensued the, we had to request a humanitarian and we had to do this. Like now they are actively offering expedited transfers to victims that are dependents, because that would have alleviated a whole lot of the, the turmoil in our process. And, and that for me is, is what's important, making sure that we are equipped for the future and making sure that every parent knows that there are actual rules and regulations that govern these programs. Because I can tell you, I've had two other kids in these programs. I had no idea. I had no idea that there were rules and regulations that govern this. And I think making that known is, is important. And I'm working with leadership to try and get that known, you know, locally and across the board, because that's what's important. Well, you know, thank you for elevating this conversation, because I think, you know, as a female myself, and that's something you grow up with. You're afraid of sexual assault. You're afraid you hold your keys in your fist. When you're walking through a dark parking lot, you are on guard in ways that you are just always aware of this as an issue. Mm-hmm. And it is not something that people want to talk about with, uh, um, with victims, let alone adding in the layer of being a child. So people want to avoid these conversations because they make us uncomfortable. And I really yeah. appreciate you and your vulnerability with sharing your story, because it's only through people like yourself sharing that we're going to be able to help correct the additional layers of, of shame and stigma mm-hmm. that are associated with this, both as the parent and as a, as the victim themselves. So thank you so much for coming on and talking with us, but I'll, I'm going to give the floor back to you as we close. Do you have any last minute thoughts you'd like to share? I would say, you know, if you encounter this as just a, a military member, as somebody in leadership, or even the person who lives next door, know that these are difficult situations. They're complex. Like we said, they're painful and they take time. And, you know, that, that right there, they take time. They take time to heal. And, you know, I I was 
I'll give this example. My kid was at the park and I couldn't see her and I panicked. She was with the respite provider. Another mom was trying to connect with me and I, cu I couldn't connect right then because I was too worried about the safety of my child. So if you, you run into a woman that's like on a mission that you don't really understand, sit with her, ask her questions. Don't just automatically think like, Ooh, that girl's rude. You know, think, man, she must be really thinking and really worried about something. I know my heart isn't out there to intentionally hurt people and not connect with them. But what trumps everything right now in my current season of life is my child and my family and feeling safe and, and learning how to thrive again. So just know that like that moment of not connecting doesn't mean that they don't ever want to connect. It just means not at this time. And I think giving them the grace of like actually understanding that and not taking it personally could make a big difference because their your support and their story and their experience makes a difference. Thank you again, Jessica. And thank you for, for listening to Military Stigma, Tough Conversations Worth Having. If you are experiencing feelings of shame as a result of stigma, know that you are not alone. There are resources available to you. This could look like contacting your military inspector general in case of systemic issues or seeking free counseling services via Military OneSource online or by calling them at 800-342-9647. Want to share your disruptive story? Contact us at info at partnersandpromise.org or visit us on our website at thepromiseact.org.